0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this episode, you'll hear Dave Pickering. She looked
1: like Miss Piggy, but when I say that, I mean in absolutely the best possible way, because (laughs) Miss Piggy is fucking hot.
0: That and more. But before that, you know, you might have heard about one month... I'm sure you have, because over the past few weeks, I've been telling you guys about One Month HTML and just how easy it is to learn to code with the One Month video courses. Well, today I'd like to introduce you to their most popular course, One Month Rails. One Month Rails is a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials that teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build their first web application, a simple photo sharing app, for example, in just 30 days. The best part is, if you get stuck, there's always someone there to help you out, like a real person. In the one-month Rails class, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and much, much more. Over 14,000 students have already started building their dream app and taking their career to the next level. So what are you waiting for? You should enroll now at OneMonth.com slash Risk Loves You. Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining and you'll be helping to support risk. Again, it's one month Rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. Now, here's the show. Whoa! Hello, kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the Red Hook Ramblers. Behind me now, today's episode is live from London. This is the first time ever that Risk has gone outside of the United States, and what a wonderful, magical time I had while I was there. I'd never been to England before. And I found London to be just magical. Such a crazy mix of old and new and rich and poor and so many races and cultures. And everyone was just as sweet and charming as they could be. Now, listen. There's a spectacular storytelling show right over there in London. It's also a podcast. It's called Spark London. And it's Joanna Yates and Dave Pickering of Spark London who brought us over. So check out their podcast. And if you're in the area, go to a Spark London show. They're spectacular. And I truly hope it's the beginning of a long relationship between our two shows. We're going to give you the whole chunk, the whole show, uh, uninterrupted, and we're going to start with Spark London's own Dave Pickering and a story we call Opening Up.
1: So uh, ev- ever since I was a teenager I felt ugly. I don't know if it was because of the things that happened at home uh, in my childhood where you know my stepdad hit me and my mum sort of uh, said various different cliches that also hurt you know like you've ruined Christmas or I wish I'd never had you or uh, men are to blame for everything in the world particularly you and uh, yeah big stuff that made me feel like bad about myself there or if it was what happened to me at school which uh, when I was 12 I changed schools and went to Cardiff. I was an English boy in Cardiff with a difficult home life and so I was picked on and uh, I became a kind of bullied person within the whole school like I uh, they had a nickname for me which was Melvin and everywhere I went down the corridors it would be Melvin Melvin uh you know people spitting on me kicking me uh calling me Melvin everywhere I went girls saying Melvin so ugly boys saying you're gay uh Melvin and uh, kind of Melvin became almost synonymous with gay and ugly uh when when I heard that word that's how I felt about myself um it was pretty intense I mean I guess the most intense moment uh, as an idea it was when uh, I threatened to slit my own wrists in the art class because I was so upset by everything that everyone was saying and the entire art class cheered me on uh, making it a bit awkward for me because obviously it was a cry for help and I didn't actually want to do it so I kind of had to back out (laughs) in public (sighs) awkward so yeah, I feel ugly about myself that's how I felt all through my teenage years. I mean, I did have girlfriends, but that didn't take away the ugliness I felt about myself. And then I went to university. I met my partner and we fell in love, had a lovely relationship, you know, with ups and downs like any relationship for 11 years. And uh, then uh, 11 years into that relationship, we decided to open up our relationship so that we could uh, sleep with other people uh, in an ethical way, everybody knowing that's what we did. So we opened up our relationship, and that's a a, a cool thing to open up your relationship, but also opening up the relationship for me was like opening up this Pandora's box of everything I felt when I was a teenager about feeling ugly, because now I've got to face rejection again. So... Uh, that's what happened. And, you know, my partner could find uh, people to sleep with when she wanted to. And I uh, couldn't. Because uh, I'm not, it's not such a great opportunity for women uh, in some ways. They might want uh, casual sex, but uh, it's easier to hook up with someone who isn't already in a relationship. And so it's hard for me to sort of like find people. Going through OKCupid okay just brought back that re- rejection feeling uh, that I just alluded to. So um, I decided to go to a uh, swingers club. Uh, a sex club to because to, I figured that the women there would be down for casual sex and I was down for casual sex and that's that's what I decided to do so I looked it up online found a place set up to go to the swingers <laughs> club uh, and, uh, you know, on the way there, there was a misconnection. And I sort of like uh, was racing to get the train. And I jumped on the train in, uh, in King's Cross and I got on the train and I was sweating. And I was like, this does not feel sexy. I feel I'm sweating. I'm, uh, I'm feeling ugly. Uh, I don't really don't know if I, the place is open from like 11 till 5 in the morning and I haven't got away home. So uh, I have to stay the whole time, really. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm kind of taking a risk here. And uh, but then I sort of look over on the train and there's a woman on the other side of the train I start thinking, mm, well, maybe she's going to this sex club so uh, that could work out quite well so that kind of made my my feelings like slightly a bit more like positive in that moment and then so I get to Alexandra Palace uh, where the, the club is and uh, go down a back alley and there's lots of uh, CCTV in that back alley uh, reasonably to protect the club and uh, the people inside it uh, but it's a slightly scary thing to go down a back alley uh to a place that you've never sort of been before and sort of knock on a big metal door and an old man uh looks out at you and says have you got your reference number and you go uh, I've got my ID but I haven't got my reference number and he's like well you look like an honest guy to me so you can come in uh, so I went into the sex club and uh it was a sex club so uh, uh I meet the uh, the concierge, who is um, well. She feels German to me, but I think she was Polish. Uh, she kind of had a had a had a. She kind of she was dressed like a kind of cross between a dominatrix and a blue coat, um, and. Uh, and, you know, the people who run the sex club, uh, who were like a kind of a couple that were kind of a mix between EastEnders and Carry On, I guess. Uh, is, is, and uh, so I meet those people and the, 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 the waitresses who are behind the bar, uh, who, you know, are just in uh, bikinis and stuff. So I already am, I'm definitely in a sex club. And uh, so the concierge, she, uh, she shakes my hand and, and uh, I, sh- I shake it back and she says, you haven't got a very firm handshake. And I'm like, okay. Uh, nice to meet you too I actually think that my handshake is a perfectly reasonable amount of firmness uh, that's the firmness I'm comfortable with actually and I don't really see any reason why this is an issue she says oh well, okay and then she takes me around the sex club uh, at this moment there's nobody else in the sex club apart from the staff and me uh, it's just a slight a strange experience so she, she sort of takes me around it and it's kind of like a lot of different porn sets but with nobody in them and worse lighting Uh and so, you know, there's a glory hole section, there's a few bed sections, there's all sorts of bits of the, of the club like that. There's a bit for people who are in couples to just go and be watched, but not have anyone engage in the sex with them. And around all of each of the different sort of porn sets, there is a white line, and that's a very sensible white line, uh, because that li- white line is about consent. You can't cross over into the sex that's happening unless all of the people in having that sex uh say you can so you have to stay on the outside of that white line and when she's telling me this she's looking at me like you're definitely going to be on the outside of this white line (laughs) and uh you know she's sort of like she's very very people keep saying the word virgin as if i'm actually a virgin rather than this is just my first time at a sex club um so it's so kind of getting humiliating and there's no other people uh then some people start arriving uh men uh lots of other men uh, start arriving and there's one man who his, it's his first time too so uh, the, the staff directors to talk together and we talk about it and we're like oh we're probably not going to be uh, having any sex tonight it's statistically very unlikely we're going we're to be reasonable about it we both feel awkward we had a kind of nice conversation and I realised that the good thing is I do feel calm because I can have conversations with people and we're allowed to talk about sex because this is a sex club so I'm comfortable with that but um, still there's no women and uh, so that's a bit awkward and then women start coming but they're in couples uh, so uh, they're, 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 that, that's, that's how it is right in the, in the kink community I believe and in the sex community uh, there's just a lot more men who want sex uh, going to those places it seems than, than women uh, which kind of reminded me of my <laughs> experiences on OK. Cupid. Uh, so, uh, so then finally, like a woman who is single comes to the club. She kind, of, she looked like Miss Piggy, but when I say that, I mean in absolutely the best possible way, because <laughs> Miss Piggy is fucking hot, and I refute anybody who says anything different. So. That is how she, she that's kind yeah. of how she looked. She had, a, a, she had blonde hair and, uh, and glasses, so that was different from Miss Piggy, the glasses bit. Um, but yeah, and we got into a conversation, and uh, she said, uh, so what kink brings you here? And I thought, um, not, not really any kink, because I'm kind of pretty vanilla, I just kind of want to have sex with somebody. Um, yeah, that's what's brought me here. I've opened up my relationship, and I explained that to her, and she's like, okay, well, that's fine. And we got, we got into that A big conversation, really. Like she said, the first time she'd had had sex was uh, in a group sex situation. And uh, she was American, and she was 25 because that's something that happens to you in a sex club you ask each other's ages a lot like in, in you don't do that in normal conversation when you meet someone new but you ask people's ages in a sex club because you know for obvious reasons so uh yeah so i mean so we get talking and she said to she we sort of get into i, I didn't really agree with her take on feminism but i did appreciate it and what she said was uh, what she's, and I know that's an t- awkward thing for a man to say, but I think you'll see what I mean in a minute. She said uh, she thinks that basically men have it worse than women generally uh, because she can take the periods, the childbirth, and the unequal pay if she can get free drinks and shag anyone she likes. Yeah. Well, I mean. Fair enough. That's her. That's her take on it. I, I I see it a little bit differently, but at the same time, that's a cool way of thinking. And I did I did I did relate relate to that. You know. Um, so so we get talking, and and she's sort of like she's not suggesting that we're going to get together. It's just a conversation. And a guy called Dave arrives. I'm also called Dave. So there's two Daves and one girl talking here. Uh, two Daves, one cup. Uh, is what I want to say, but it doesn't really make any sense. But. Uh, so yeah and he's he's uh 37 and he's uh jewish and he'd, he'd driven there so he uh he was he wasn't going to drink and he was a really nice guy didn't like football we really related to each other there and we started talking about how rubbish football is which is my opinion and i, I respect your opinions um but uh so uh so yeah and, and, and that's what started to happen they'd hooked up before and they had a kind of pre-existing relationship and so i sort of thought all oh, right i see how this is going to go you know they're going to hook up and and i'm not going to hook up with them but that's okay you know this is a new experience and you know i wasn't expecting anything to happen um but people keep arriving and there's more and more men but more and more people as well but nobody's having sex and then just suddenly all of a sudden like a sixth sense almost comes across me teddy her name was and uh dave and we just sort of stand up go off to one of the porn-like sets and uh start having a threesome, uh, mostly directed by her, which was cool with me uh, and a lot of fun. And I was kind of like really, really relaxed. And like, I was thinking I'm having sex with a woman and another guy and I'm not gay, but I don't uh, find this uncomfortable. Um, I don't find it uncomfortable to look at him having sex with her at all. I'm pretty into it. And uh, I was, we were having sex, all three of us together, you know, so I guess I can kind of say I'm not 100% straight, which is what the kids at school thought. Uh, so we had, we had a, a, a good time uh, there. And it was a sort of strange sort of moment because, you know, we're having sex and it's good sex, but there's lots of men in a big circle around us on the other side of the line wanking. Um, so that's a kind of strange experience and you know all of my feelings about my body and the way I look like I feel like properly disgusted by my own body but in that moment I didn't you know and there's all of these guys wanking over my body I guess I should have (laughs) felt disgusted but for some reason that was pretty validating even though I'm sure they were probably looking at her more than me um so you know that's how that went down and then what it did is it sort of started the whole club up you know because the first time someone has sex that's like what everyone's waiting for and so like everybody, it kind of felt like wow we're like, we're like DJs like bringing, the, bringing up the sexual atmosphere in this club um and, uh, you know, so then we sort of uh, went out for a cigarette after that and uh, had had cigarette. And the, the guy that was also waiting with me at the beginning, he wasn't so chummy with me anymore. He was much more bitter and kind of, I'm a nice guy, um, which was a little bit kind of weird for me because I've never been the man that someone else, another man is jealous of, you know. So it was kind of validating but made me feel guilty for being validated by it. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah. Th- so then we went back into the club, and then the the, the next thing I know, you know, we're, there's like a dance floor bit with a pole in the middle, and it's not really a place where people have sex. And it's sort of like tables where people are sitting in couples and talking. Um, but the next thing I know, I'm on the floor in the middle of the dance floor. Teddy's got her back against the pole, and I'm going down on her. And the whole room is like looking at me, like doing this, and like nobody's saying anything. They're just looking at me doing this, and I just get really into going down on because it was really good, fun. Um, and, you know, I, you, know, I, you know, I can't really see what's going on and I sort of, like, get really into it. And she comes, like, amazingly. And I, this was quite, pr- pretty cool as well because she said to me, like, I don't normally come in group sex situations apart from that time when I, there were six guys. Uh, so I, I felt pretty good about this moment of, like, validation. Of Like, this whole room is looking at me getting this person off and, like, they're getting off on this and I, I don't know what's happened to me. I am amazing. LAUGHTER um, and, you know, that was, that was amazing. Uh, that was the big moment for me. The moment of validation was that moment. Um, but, you know, we did have a lot more sex after that, and a lot of other people got involved in it, and I was cool with that, too. Um, but that was basically how it went down. And then, like, at five in the morning, you know, we're all sort of talking, and it's kind of calm, and, you know, we're eating. Uh, they had uh, Swedish meatballs, which were excellent, in the- <laughs> I, have to, I have to say, they did taste great. Um, and like Adele's playing on the music and we're all kind of like calm and you know Dave is going to give uh, Teddy a lift back to the, his place because they're going to carry on having sex afterwards I think um, and he says you know why don't I give you a lift home so we kind of go down and we, we get into his car uh, Teddy takes off her sort of polka dot uh, two piece lingerie and puts on her nightclothes, her pyjamas which I thought was an excellent move by her Uh <laughs> As we got into the car, and uh, he, you know, he drives me back to Asda in Leyton, uh, where he dropped me. Uh, and he said, you know, mate, I've got this uh, chocolate cake here. You know, uh, f- I got given it at work. I don't really want it. Do you want it? And Teddy grabbed it out of his hand and said, No, I want it because she's that kind of girl. Uh, and ate ate the cake. And he said, Well, I, I've got these chocolates as well. You might as well have them. And I was like, well, I don't really, I don't really need chocolates. I've had a very great night. And he was like, No, they're not for you. They're for your girlfriend. And I was like, that's really nice. That's a really beautiful moment. Like, this is, this is everything that I hope for about open relationships right here. And uh, so I took the chocolates, and they went back, you know, to watch uh, The Big Bang Theory. That's what they were going to watch. You know. And I walked back uh, from, from the Asda, feeling, you know... Good about myself, and actually, like I wasn't a horribly ugly and terrible person. I mean, I did have a feeling at that moment that the sex clubs might be a little bit like gambling, and I'd, I'd lucked out that time. Um, but it, I might as easily be the guys wanking in the in the darkness. Um, so I went back one other time and discovered I was right. I wasn't one of the guys wanking in the darkness. That is not really my scene. But I uh, I did uh, realise that I had lucked out massively on my first time. So I I learned from this whole experience that maybe. You know, it's good to quit while you're ahead in the sex club, but I also while well, you're giving head, uh, but I also learned that that I am not ugly, which I believed in that moment. I find it hard to believe in this moment, so it's hard to say. But I'm going to try and say it proudly. But it's not going to go that proudly, but let's see. That I am not ugly. Thank you.
2: Dave Bickering!
0: And he also has a wonderfully firm handshake. <laughs> We got into a little discussion beforehand. I also think Miss Piggy is hot. And a lot of people disagreed with us, but I I stuck in there. I was like, no, go with it. Like, I I described once in a story, uh, meeting a guy who I thought was really, really beautiful and sexy in a kind of an old way. And I said, he he, he kind of looked like Yoda. My editor, the guy who edits the the episodes, is like, you cannot say that if for nothing else, because he's going to hear it. <laughs> but to me, Yoda is still kind of sexy. Um, all right, let me bring up our next storyteller. she It was such a thrill to have her reach out to us and there are so many different storytelling shows that are happening here, especially just Spark London itself has so much going on, and so it's a thrill to know that everything uh, is is so exciting now over the pond as well. Uh, Please welcome to the stage, Soraya Singh.
3: So um, my first time in the States, I flew out of London about six o'clock, arrived in the States at six o'clock, so I'd been up for about 24 hours at this point and I uh, rocked up at my friend Mark's place and uh, he was really excited to see me and started talking away, coming out with all the things that we should do. And then he's like, no, 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 you have a shower, freshen up, and then I'll you know, tell you all about all the things you're gonna do over the next four days. I'm on my way uh, through to New Zealand, by the way. And we're both, both of us are from New Zealand. And uh, so shower sounds amazing. I have a shower, it's, it's amazing. Then I um, put on some fresh clothes and that's incredible after you've been in a plane for 12 hours. There's only one place in the whole apartment that has a mirror, so I'm straightening my hair in the sitting room. (laughs) And uh, Mark comes up to me and he says, uh, ''Oh, you've got to meet this person, ''and, oh, we've totally got to have breakfast at this particular cafe, ''and I think my neighbour might be dead, ''and also we've got to go to this burger bar too.'' And I'm like, ''Can you just back up a second there? ''Did you you just say you think your neighbour might be dead?'' And then the story comes out of, of what happened while I was in the shower. <laughs> so. Mark's downstairs neighbours had come up and he refers to them as the stoner student filmmakers and they had been trying to get hold of the landlord for a reason completely unrelated to what they mentioned to Mark which was that they noticed that the guy opposite Mark who's upstairs from them that his light in his apartment had been on for about four months and no one had seen this guy Richard for about the same period of time but they only really knew him to sort of say hi to in the corridor and that kind of thing they didn't really know anything about him at all other than that he was this guy who tended to disappear off the radar because his work had come around one time and uh said you know he hasn't been at work for three weeks so do you guys know where he is and it turned out that he was just in his apartment the whole time he just hadn't gone to work so he's he's got this habit of disappearing off the radar so they kind of realized that they'll be able to see into this window where the light is on a bit better from mark's landing and it's quite a small window it's about this big bit and they can only just see onto the windowsill and on the windowsill they can see flies but not just any flies they're like those really really big flies but there's no smell or anything like that so this isn't necessarily instantly suspicious And then they realize that they could go up onto the roof and maybe see a bit better. And this is where Mark's girlfriend, Claire, comes into play because she's really tall. So she can kind of crane around the corner of the roof and see down into this window, but it's quite a distance and it's a really small window. She thinks she sees what looks like a blood splatter on the wall and maybe some knees sticking up in the bath, but it looks like a mannequin. She's really sure it can't be a person. And uh, so the Stone of Filmmaker students go downstairs and get their video camera. I'm still in the shower at this point. <laughs> Come, they they, they bring, it, bring it up onto the roof, tie a rope to it, and lower it down off the roof, and take some film in this window, and then bring it back up again. And basically they managed to confirm what Claire saw, which was knees sticking up in the bath that don't look real they look like a mannequin and something that looks like a blood splatter on the wall and you may be thinking like this is a bit naive why would anyone have like a mannequin in their bathtub and a blood splatter on the wall and it not be something extremely worrying but I don't know if you've been to some apartments in San Francisco that kind of belong to the Burning Man crowd laughter <laughs> the time that I was there there was like um, I went to one place that was like kind of wall-to-wall animal skulls and another place that was like wall-to-wall silver painted mannequins like a 90s music video It was amazing but I can completely understand why they were I didn't understand at the time so I said look you're here on a work visa right and I think it's actually really seriously illegal if you think there might be a body somewhere and you don't report it But um, Marco's extremely reluctant to get involved at all with the police from his personal experience and other sort of things that he's done. It's been a very, very bad situation whenever the police have been involved. So he's like, I've gotta be really, really, really sure before I'm gonna contact the police about anything. And Claire's kind of somewhere in the middle. She's like, yeah, I can understand that, but you really, you know, really, we probably should be. And I'm saying, you've got to call the police. So we're not really getting anywhere and making a decision. So we do what, you know, you do when you don't know whether or not to report the body. And we went to a party. (laughs) It was one of these um, things that, that Mark had been hyping up just before he told me about this body, There's this great party over in Oakland, and this is where they had all the skulls lighting <laughs> the whole house. Um, and I met all these really great Californian people who you can just talk to them about anything and they don't bat an eyelid. And this is really weird for me because I've been living in, in Britain for 10 years, but I'd actually got kind of used to it. I find this thing, right, where... Conversations that I never imagined would be controversial are controversial here, you know. So saying to someone, "Hey, so what part of town do you live in?" It's a little bit like saying, "So what part of town do you live in, so that I can just come round and stand outside your house and sigh." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, it wasn't like this at all at this party. Everyone was, you know, quite happy to engage in any sort of conversation whatsoever. So Mark and Claire and I were sort of raising this this kind of what would you do scenario with people if you know um there's there's the flies but no smell and there's you know blood maybe maybe a mannequin in the bath and every single person we spoke to was like i would have called the police like yesterday And after speaking to many, many people about this, Mark was finally convinced that this was something that he actually really had to do. And so when we finally got back to his apartment, it's about 2 in the morning, and I've been up for, yeah, getting on to 36 hours at this point. So if it wasn't already surreal, you know. And he gets out a bottle of the best whiskey, and we have a few shots so that he can um, steady his nerves in order to call the police, because that's quite a big thing for him. He finally does it and uh, makes the 911 call and the... um, The dispatcher says to him, you know, why do you think that there's a body in the next next door apartment? And he's like, well, you know, the flies, the film with the blood and the knees sticking up in the bath. And then there's this silence on the other end. And then she said, this is priority number one. We are sending a unit around straight away. You'll have to be down on the street to meet them, please, sir. And so it's only about two or three minutes before uh, the police get there. But this actually has nothing at all to do with Claire and I. We're not involved in any way, but we're kind of crazy rubberneckers. So (laughs) we get Mark's apartment door and we edge it open like about two inches and she's a bit taller than me but we're kind of, so I'm crouching underneath her and she's up here so there's like these two sets of eyes kind of peeking out the door like some kind of weird Warner Brothers cartoon or something yeah. like that. But the police, to their credit, don't bat an eyelid they must see this all the time as they come up. But they're kind of a bit of a motley crew like they all seem to be like really young like they're all about 21 or something like that and half of them are plain clothes. I'm not sure why you need plain clothes officers for this sort of situation. And they don't seem to know what they're doing, they're talking in numbers. They're saying things like, "If this is a seven nine one, we have to do a 323 two They ask Mark to show them, you know, what roused his suspicions, and he shows them the flies and takes them up onto the ceiling. And they bang on the door and they're calling out to this guy, Richard. They're like, "Richard, are you in there? You know, you can come out, rich You know." And there's nothing, nothing's happening at all. And eventually, they decide that they're going to break the door down. And it turns out the police in real life break doors down in different ways from how they do in the movies, right? So it's not this kind of, like, this manly forward kick, right? It's this kind of, like, pissed-off horse, right? <laughs> it's kind of backwards kick thing. And, <laughs> and it takes a few kicks to get the door down. And there's, a, like, uh, splinters, little bits of wood just flying everywhere. And it's the fourth kick that the door actually comes down. And there's just a couple of seconds where I see into this guy's front hall... And I see these posters on the wall in this front hall, and there's, like, Lord of the Rings and, um, like, posters with dragons and stuff and War- World of Warcraft. And I just had this sudden realisation that he could be anyone that I know, you know, sudden sort of identification with who, the type of person that he is. But that doesn't last very long, because we hear this coughing and this gagging from outside as the police are confronted with the smell and they're just bellowing from like oh my god the smell. Claire has this really sharp reaction and she slams the door closed so that none of the smell gets into into Mark's apartment which is a real relief. And uh, then the police are outside and um, they they're calling into this apartment. You know Richard if you're in there you can come out. You you haven't done anything wrong. And They call this a few times and then there's nothing then they start sort of drawing lots as to who's going to go in because none of them want to go in and somehow it ends up being like the smallest, blondest lady (laughs) who has to go in and um, and she's in there for a minute or so and then she comes out and she's white as a sheet and she says, "He's, he's like soup, he's melted into the bath and there's a cat Apparently, it had got into some food or something like that, but apparently they don't li- live very long without water, so probably didn't, didn't live very long. And at this stage, there's not really anything that, more that the police can do, so these young police officers kind of filter out, and then this older police officer comes in who's like a senior officer who asks Mark a lot of questions about, you know, um, do you know anything about this guy? No. Um, do you know his family? No. Do you know who his friends are? No. They, you know, ends up declaring it not a crime scene, basically. You know, so it's getting very small hours of the morning, and Mark comes back into the apartment, and we have a few more shots of the the whiskey, and these people kind of keep on coming along, and there's like this um, the photographers who photograph the whole scene, and then the next guy is finally, and we're sort of thinking about. I hope that there's going to be someone to remove the body soon, and and then this guy comes who removes the body. But then he comes out, having done this work, and he comes out and he says, No one told me about the cat. I don't do cats. (laughs) And Mark says... You ladle human soup into body bags and you, you don't do cats. And this guy's like, no, you have to call animal control for that.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: so then Mark has to call animal control. and we have to have more whiskey while we're waiting for them to show up. And uh, then they take the cat in a small body bag. And, um, and then the very last people who come are the people that... Um, seal up the apartment, or they kind of take all these readings around the building and then they seal up the apartment with tape and they put this, like, almost like a warning on a cigarette packet, it's like Surgeon General, sort of, this is, you know, um, don't go in here on pain of death kind of thing, you know, real dangerous stuff. And so for the rest of the holidays, we're kind of going in and out, you are sort of confronted with this biohazard scene across the hall. So at this point, you know, there's nobody else coming and we could sleep. Theoretically, And um, I've been up at this point for well over 36 hours, but somehow I'm not able to sleep, and I doubt that Mark or Claire were able to sleep either. And I guess, like, since that has happened, I've been thinking a bit about, you know, those people that you know, like Richard, who have disappeared off the radar, who deal with their depression in that kind of way, that they totally remove themselves from life. And... That's really scary, the way that someone can just sort of take themselves aside and stare into that dark abyss alone. And you never know what to say because, you know, they're actually intentionally shutting you out. But I'm I'm brought back to what the police said when they called into his apartment. And I kind of wondered whether things might have been different if there'd been someone there to say that to him four months ago. It's all right, you can come out now. You haven't done anything wrong. Thank you.
0: Soraya Singh! Uh, I just want to thank uh, Jessie Murphy for her wonderful violin playing. It seems so wonderful to have her. And also, Joanna Yates uh, for helping us bring the show here to London, along with Dave Pickering. Our next storyteller is a game developer here in town. Please welcome to the stage Simon Sargentson.
5: So my story is about my mum, and me and my mum had a very special relationship, and this is something you're sure to appreciate in this moment, where my mum is carrying our big red tube TV onto our balcony and balancing it dangerously on the ledge, and she's screaming at me, Simon, if you don't stop watching Cartoon Network, I'll let it smash to pieces, I swear! (laughs) And I was really scared at that point, because to my eight-year-old self, that TV was very important. So I ran out to the balcony and tugged her jean leg and said, please, please, just put it back. I'll stop watching Cartoon Network. <laughs> and she said, OK, OK. She put it back. She gave in. I didn't. Cow and chicken was too good. <laughs> so my mum was a, an ex-Catholic, ex-hippie, ex-Buddhist, single mum in that order. And as such, she was quite a free spirit, which had certain advantages for me as a kid. So when I suggested to my mum that we turn our, my bunk bed into a prison, she said, sure, why not? Let's do it. <laughs> so her and her best friend spend a day kitting out my bunk bed with wooden slats, painted gray, and a little prison door <laughs> with a, with a, with a hanglock that had to be taken away from me after a certain while because I, I managed to last all... Three sets of keys in the, in the confines of my room, so I was clearly not up to that. So, perhaps unsurprisingly, my free spirited mother and I lived in a shared living house. It was a sort of watered down commune for the 90s, you know, so no sex, no drugs, no rock and roll. What was left was kind of vegetarianism, organicness, and environmentalism. So, we, we played wonderful board games like uh, No Time to Waste, in which we had to fight against the clock to save animals. <laughs> and, uh, And and eat disgusting meat replacements And to this day I can still not stomach tofu And the like And she got a little bit of criticism While living there Because even though they're all free spirits Somehow these free spirits still have Like really strong principles about how things should be And they didn't think it was a good idea That her son woke up every morning in a prison So But you know to her credit, she took the flack and she just did things her own way. And, and you know, she was wonderfully creative and inspiring. And this really came out when she was organizing birthdays. So, for my 10th birthday, she organized a detective mystery for me and my friends to solve. And no detective mystery is, of course, complete without a body. So, uh, in my neighbor's house, who claimed because he was drunk all night, didn't know anything, we had her best friend laid out carefully as a body. I. Swaggered in there with my 10 year old swagger uh, because my mum had told me beforehand that she was going to stand right up. Of course, I thought that had nothing to do with it, but you know, I I stood in there, I was cool. And my friends came in, and some of them had to be cancelled afterwards. And they were like, you know, that neck wood she had here, you know, that was just sliced ham and ketchup, don't worry, she'll get up, it'll be fine. (laughs) Uh, and in case you were wondering, we found out the murderer was a jilted ex-lover living across from us. Uh, we had found his initials on the, the ketchup-stained knife we found in the garden. <laughs> uh, and then um, a couple of years later, I was, uh, I was getting on my bike, like the good ch- Dutch boy I was, uh, outside of our house and the intercom buzzed and uh, I heard my mum's voice and she said, uh, Simon. Are you there? And I said, yes, yes, I'm here. Simon, you remember I, I told you the other day that I was going to go to the doctors? And um, I was silent for a bit and I said, yes, yes, I remember. Well Simon, they found something. Um, they think it's cancer. And uh, I was silent for a while and uh, I said, why, why are you telling me, why are you telling me like this over the intercom and she was like, well, you know, you remember you were so angry last time that I told my boyfriend first. Well, I wanted to sell you first so you know go on and we'll talk about it later and I did I did did go on and I went on to fencing lessons and then it started with chemotherapy and pills and lots of pills like white pills and blue pills and red pills, and then, because she was a free spirit, that came all the alternative medicine. So we had brown Tibetan powder pills, and, you know, we had little bottles of homeopathic medicine, medicine that was so diluted that it somehow worked even better. I, I don't understand. <laughs> and and big green bottles of vile green liquid, chlorophyll, distilled from plants. It was very bitter, very disgusting. I tried it once. Didn't do that again. Uh, and these things also, also came with rituals, So, my mum started taking holly injections, which was good for something, I don't know what that was, and she started brewing huge volumes of coffee to clean out her colon because that needed to be clean as well. And um, at a certain point she was saying to me, like, we we can't eat with metal cutlery anymore. You know, metals are poisonous, they're not good for us and not good for my cancer. So, we ate with plastic and wooden cutlery from then on, and I can tell you, wooden knives and plastic knives are pretty shit. all, all this medicine and stuff also re- you know, resulted in her going to an alternative healer, and I remember going with her, and he took all sorts of readings I didn't understand, and she ended up in between two huge copper discs made of copper tubing that were crackling loudly with electricity. God knows what that was good for. but It did something, apparently. But all, all this medicine, you know, alternative or otherwise, didn't prevent my mum from having to go into surgery. And um, she had a breast amputation and several other surgeries. And by this time, I I had probably turned into a sulky teenager. I was really into my leather jacket and my Dr. Markins. And I was stomping around school, not many friends. And my favourite catch line, if anybody asked me, was, I don't care. And um, (laughs) I wasn't doing so well. I mean, my grades were dropping and I wasn't really talking to my mum about her disease. I wasn't really engaging with anything. So... At one day, my mum decided to do something about it. So I was sitting in my room, listening to my favourite angry metal tool at the time. And, uh, and she stepped in in, a, in her morning robe, and she closed the door, and she said, Simon, um, I've got to show you something. And uh, to my complete horror, because I was used to this kind of thing, because, you know, hippie parents come with some disadvantages, mainly, which is they walk around naked lots when you're younger. And uh, I never got quite used to that. Um, and, and this time she disrobed half her robe and she showed me where her breast used to be. And I was totally freaked out at this point because my mom was naked. That was, that was the first thing, right? And then I also realized like, you know, her breast hadn't just slid off, right? It was cut out and then stitched. And I could see the stitch marks, you know, this, this really painful penetrative marking of what had once been there. And you, I, I felt that pain that you feel when you see somebody else in pain, that physical reaction you have. And then there was also this idea like, you know, she was a woman and she had breasts and it, it meant something to her and it was part of our identity. And there was so so many painful things about that. And uh, I went through all sorts of emotions in that moment, like pity, shame, anger, sadness, confusion. And she, my mom, she was waiting for me to respond, to engage with this, but I had nothing within this tornado. I was just clinging on to this moment. I was just... I was obliging by looking, but I, I couldn't do anything else. So I, I just clenched my jaw and I, I, I read out the moment. I, I knew at some point this, you know, this was over and at some point I was like, okay, I, I saw, it. Are, are we done now? And said, yes, yes. And she, she walked out. I think she was a little bit disappointed. After that, she oscillated quite strongly between getting much worse and much better. So I remember at least half a dozen times where I said, I love you in the hospital not knowing whether that was going to be the last time I saw her alive. But she had a great sense of perspective about all this, and it's kind of funny to be telling this story here now because my mum and I used to attend a storytelling club. I didn't tell any story. Well, I told one story, but that was it. Um, other than that, like, people mostly told fiction, and she told her own story, which was about her being ill. So she said, well, one day I was sitting on the toilet, And I hadn't had a good shit in days (laughs) and I was really stuck and I was determined. I was determined to make something happen because no matter what I did, like this whole thing, this whole area, I didn't move one bit. So I was sitting there for half an hour and I was thinking, what can I do? What can I do? So, very genuinely and carefully, I start to reach back there, kind of seeing what's going on. And I, and I was kind of expecting, you know, this kind of wet, sticky mess, but I, actually I found like this kind of rough texture. And as I, as I, as I kind of went into there, as I realized it was kind of sand. No wonder I was stuck. It was just stuck with sand. So, carefully at first, a bit more boldly, I started clearing the way down there. Because I had to do something. And after that you know, I had the best shit ever. <laughs> so so at, at the time, uh, I must admit, I was embarrassed. I was, I was trying to make myself invisible as best as possible within a crowd of people. But now looking back at it, you know, it's pretty badass, you know? My mom, she really managed to make this kind of, you know, her sitting on the toilet an experiential adventure, which she could appreciate and share. So, you know, well done, well done. <laughs> So as she got iller and iller as well, she had a lot more time to write. She always wrote a lot, a lot of poetry and things like that. And she had an email group. And I want to read a short little excerpt of one of the emails she sent just to give you a little bit of a sense. So she said, how much longer? You must ask yourself this every time you receive one of these emails. To be honest, that fear is not very present for me most of the time. It might be denial or maybe courage. Who knows? I think it is a bit of both. This last chemotherapy session, I got scared again. What do I want to do? What is really important in life still? I find it hard to answer that question. By and large, what I do in life is not really that meaningful. I think about rearranging the living room, what to wear, who's going to do the dishes. It's hard for me to let life be so ordinary, at least when you think you're going to die soon. I think it's part of my nature to want things to be grand and awe-inspiring. And now, just before my death, I fill my life with trivial things. A little chatting to friends, some short walks. Well, don't work too hard, all of you, and do trivial things in the sun. Pray for less misery and more, and send lots of love, light, and understanding, and wisdom in that direction, please. And be sweet to each other. So that was my mum through and through. So as as she knew, she realized that she was going to die, she started making preparations and she organized her own funeral. And one of the things she really wanted was she wanted her own casket. So her best friend and her brother-in-law made a a beautiful kind of uh, light wood-colored casket. But my mom was nothing if not a practical woman, so she also had it fitted with slats. And that thing stood for months in our living room as a little cupboard and uh, it, it contained shoes and a picture of Jesus and Buddha and a little candle and uh, you know she thought it was a kind of a gentle reminder of things to come and uh, eventually though after a couple of months we actually uh, had to put the casket to use and uh, me and her incredibly caring boyfriend who I owe a lot to uh, we decorated the casket with Tibetan dragons on the side and we were lucky in that the, the burial ground was, it was within walking distance of her house, so we had a beautiful walking procession, and we carried her there. When we arrived there, the whole hall was jam-packed. So many people, all her friends and her family. And lots of people, they said really nice things about her, as you ought to. And, and it, it was her. It was my mum, actually, that showed us that there was another side as well. as She had her boyfriend's mum read out an email in which she stated, like, Please, people, when I have my funeral, please, for God's sake, please somebody say that I was a bitch sometimes. <laughs> and we all laughed because we knew it was true. But <laughs> uh, and she also reminded us, none of us are perfect, you know, n- not even in death. And then um, we, we buried her and we lowered the casket. And as you do with funerals, everybody had to kind of shovel some sand on there as a little gesture. And when I had the spade, I was like, I was overcome with something. I was like, no, you know, I don't want to do this gesture thing. I actually want to do something. You know, I'm supposed to do something physical here. So I, I stood there and I, I, I put the work in, you know, shovel after shovel after shovel. And I saw the casket slowly disappear. And when it fully disappeared, I, I, had, a, I had a moment there uh, where I realized, you know, I, I was grown up now. Um, you know, I... I I haven't mentioned my father here, who's also a wonderful and inspirational figure to me. But unfortunately, he had also passed away a couple of months past. He deserves his own story altogether. I won't go into that too much. But I realized there at that moment that I was growing up and there was no going back and nobody was ever going to be my parent anymore. And you know, this was it. I was 16 and I was all grown up. But the more important realization came from me afterwards. So we had a big big meeting in the clubhouse in our neighbourhood, the neighbourhood in which as a ten-year-old I had apprehended a killer, my birthday, and this clubhouse also incidentally where where my mum told the story about sitting on the toilet. So there was a tremendous resonance for me there. And as, as I was sitting outside with my friends, chatting and drinking and smoking, on my seventh beer, believe it or not, happily drunk. I was looking at my friends and I saw my old, my very dear old friend talking to some new friends and I I saw my friends mix and they talked to each other easily and freely. And I thought of all the people in the house and the family and her friends and my friends all mixing. And I realized that even though I didn't have any parents, my mom had invested a tremendous amount of love and care in all these people and in me. And through her, I also invested love in other people. So even though I didn't think she was there in any kind of spiritual sense of the world and a word, and I still don't think that, she had given me something very real, which was everything I needed at sixteen years old to take on the rest of life.
0: Simon Sargentson I love that idea of savoring some of the purely trivial things, the simple things. Also, I'm not a parent myself, but I would imagine that many parents regularly find themselves wishing they could really send their children off to prison. <laughs> All right, I'd like to bring up our final storyteller of the evening. He is the host of the Spark show that happens upstairs at Ritzy and at Ritzie in Brixton. This has been such an honor and a joy to get to know his story and to get to know him. You will soon find out he's quite a character. Please welcome to the stage Mr. Radcliffe Royd. <laughs>
2: good evening what a privilege for you Um, what a privilege to share uh, this stage with so many wonderful storytellers so cast your minds back to the summer of 2001 it's a Sunday evening I'm sitting in my fully loaded Audi Quattro Coupe (laughs) I'm wearing a suit, because I'm that kind of guy. (laughs) I'm obviously a shaker and a mover. So I come from Northumberland. I come from one of those families which can best be described, in America I'd be described as Ivy League. I'm coming back from a weekend in Bournemouth, on the coast in England, the Riviera, if you will. I'm driving back. (laughs) A boy can dream. It's an Audi Quattro, fully loaded simple minds, live in the City of Light playing, I am master of my destiny and I pull up to my rather smart and elegant five bedroom house in Clapham, sort of she-she residential area where lots of city types, which I was supposed to be, lived I put my key in the lock, nothing 9.30 on a Sunday night, you know Oh, these bloody builders. The key didn't work. I knelt down for the second time to this woman who was behind the front door and negotiated through the letterbox the end of my second marriage. A little more sympathy, please. (laughs) I mean, you've only met me. You don't know her at all. (laughs) Go with what you know. I didn't know she was pumped up on a heady cocktail of Syroxac and Chardonnay. And I had no idea. <laughs> She'd taken a gin me. Anyway, but long story short, I was out. I rang a friend. What does anyone do in a time of need? I rang a friend. And I said, oh mate, oh God, it's all gone wrong. She's thrown me out. She's changed the locks, man. And he just went, just come, dude, just come. <laughs> we all need these friends in life. He lived over in Notting Hill, I got in the car, shot over there, feeling pretty jagged. I was scared, I was more angry and concerned and thought, you know, I thought, oh, well, work it out, you know, and he just gave me a big hug and said, what a bitch, what a bitch. (laughs) And as he stood aside, he said, I want you to meet Kirby. Kirby was a bit of a fox, actually. Slightly tattooed, just a little too much, you know, which I like. (laughs) More importantly, she was carrying a tray with a very exotic combination of pharmaceuticals.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was hurting. I mean, I re- you know, I was devastated. It wasn't good, you know. I had a business meeting the next day and my suit was in the house. You know, how, how was I going to look good? <laughs> um, so, you know, there was a major issue. Anyway, my friend just said, come, come, come. And he arranged this very smart glass bowl with some crack cocaine, which none of you in here will know about. Some of you will have a friend who's done it. <laughs> and he just offered me this sort of exotic contraption. And he just went, Welcome to the Breath of the Virgin. <laughs> How can anyone resist that? Come on! And I, within five minutes, Marriage, who needs it? Why? Oh, she'll be fine. I was off my head. Now, for those not familiar with crack cocaine use, And I'm not about to give a live demonstration. (laughs) Unless you've got 60 quid, see me afterwards. (laughs) Uh, But um, to come down is quite difficult, because you go very high very quickly. Luckily, the Lao, cambodia border, and the Thai, and Afghanistan have helped us out with this, as they they provide heroin, which neatly counters and brings you back. (laughs) What they don't tell you on the tin, (laughs) is that when you take heroin and crack cocaine together, for anything more than about three days, you can't stop. (laughs) But let's be honest, why would you want to? This was heaven. Uh, The Breath of the Virgin. He introduced me to a whole new concept of breakfast. It was called the Holy Trinity. (laughs) A bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of that. Blast on that and you you didn't know when you had breakfast you know, it was still dark outside and bright lights inside, that's all you could see, and the trouble with these things is that when you take those sort of drugs which I did as um, a perfectly reasonable response to an emotional trauma, I think you'd agree (laughs) yeah, okay hostile crowd, eh? (laughs) I am going at this like there is no tomorrow. And do you know what, there wasn't. There wasn't a today, <laughs> there wasn't a tomorrow, there wasn't a yesterday. I still had the joint account card. Oh yeah, ace <laughs> in the hole. 300 pounds a day, <laughs> straight out. Straight up my arms, straight down my throat. Within a fortnight, I was hopelessly addicted. I mean, chronically, physically addicted. Um, and one of the great benefits, I suppose, well, there's got to be some positive PR, isn't it? <laughs> is in order to keep a drug habit like that going, you've got to do a lot of stealing from your friends. So it's good to be popular.
4: <laughs>
2: that popularity goes pretty damn quick. But very soon I was on my own, I was thrown out. I ended up through a very short, sharp shot, circuitous route in a little part of London not so far from here called Soho. Now, for those who are visitors to London, Soho is the red light district of any note. But it is where the bright lights go and London stays alive and there's go-go girls and there's Bob's your auntie, as they say in Thailand, all sorts of different gender, non-specific type people who are free to express and operate in a way that they want. I very quickly ended up isolated. I very quickly felt the the sort of sense of shame, but the sense of urgency, and this is what I try and get across, is this sense of the the compulsion. There was no break, there was no rationale, there was no let's watch BBC or let's watch Channel 2 instead of Channel 3. It it didn't exist. The world narrowed. I had to have. Now, luckily, as a sort of rather well-educated private school, poncy little rich posh kid, I suppose you'd call me, um one has a certain amount of resources, which is um, a very well-developed sense of entitlement. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you can agree with (laughs) that. I found helping myself really very easy. I took Soho as a self-service sort of bonanza. (laughs) And I very quickly was using needles. I was isolated alone. I was living as a street bum. It's the only way I can describe it. I was feral. And I thought, I'll give it one old family try. And I thought, I'll ring mum. Got to a call box. Hello, mum. Yes, it's me. How would it be if I came home for a few days? Oh, no, dear, our insurance wouldn't cover that. (laughs) And the phone went down. I felt so rejected. I felt so alone. I felt awful. And then, as God so often does, he put in my path a man that nobody else wanted to know. <laughs> we are talking here of a chap called Delroy. Well, you and I would call him Del. Delroy. He called himself Delroy. He'd spoken so much crack cocaine, and obviously listen to a lot of Keith Richard records, and he'd spoke like that because his throat was gone. And he'd heard me on the phone, and he said, "Oh, mate, are you in trouble? He said, Can I get you anything?" I said, well, I could use something to smoke, actually. Yeah. He's an interesting chap. He's got a spiderweb tattoo across half his face. And I'm at six foot four in a sort of the remains of, a, of, of my sort of Johnny Bowden catalogue, Ralph Lauren look. Um, unwashed, I might add. We made a happy pair, and he said, he said I'll tell you why, you can come and crash your mind tonight. I'd met this guy two minutes earlier. I knew he could get me drugs, and now he's inviting me home. Now, I've never actually been a male prostitute, um, but I'm, for any of the, you who are here, please don't feel you're being singled out at all. I can see certainly three or four. Um, <laughs> but at that time, as he walked me through Soho to the back of the Soho Hotel, funnily enough, which, and I saw the warm glowing lights, oh, that's quite civilised. I did think, what was the price tag of going home with him? But I wasn't about to be sort of. You know, gender-specific or, or, or gender-sensitive. If if he could get me what I needed, I would do whatever it took. But he did a moody left down Richmond News just before we got to the welcoming glow of the Soho Hotel, and took me to a twelve-yard builder's dumpster, a skip. Um, for those that don't know what a builder's skip is, it's that big square box which is a giant bucket that they put rubble and rubbish in to throw away. Now, obviously, being of high born and high birth, um, I had a convertible skip, a convertible dumpster. It had a rag top. And I lived in this skip. Every day, we had to get money to get drugs. Now, how do you do that? Imagine your wallet goes, your credit card goes, your car goes, every available support that you have goes. What do you do? Do you you cry? Go home to mummy? Do you give up? No, 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 no. You get creative. And I managed, with Del, to support a drug habit largely out of stealing chicken wings out of Sainsbury's. (laughs) (laughs) We would do steaks as well. We weren't all budget, okay? But what I did was actually, quite inadvertently, create... um, an awful lot of help for the social services system because the woman that did the Meals on Wheels for the elderly would offer me 50p in the pound on anything I gave her. So if I had a 10 pound tray of steaks, she'd give me a 5 pound note. How is that crime? (laughs) I'm helping the homeless of which I was one. I'm helping the elderly and I'm helping the Meals on Wheels woman. So I'm in my head justifying that I'm doing a public service. (laughs) You've got to imagine, me at six foot four and Delroy, the spider web tattoo across half his face and we can't be bothered to walk that far. Most of the shops have spotted us <laughs> from a long way <laughs> off.
4: <laughs>
2: most days you get up, I mean, when you wake when you wake up in a builder's skip, I mean, you know, most of you here will go to your own suite later. You'll do what you need to do. I used to have to get up and squat and shit through a drain. Okay? And if I got the the wrong drain, it didn't, go away for a while, because it's all about grill size, but you learn these things. (laughs) Now, living this is feral, horrible, you know, you feel... The worst thing, the last thing you want to do is face reality. You're in the shit, you're running around, you're supporting a drug habit. Now, I've got some apologies to make, and this is a good forum to do. (laughs) it. I have never qualified as a Soho tourist guide, but there are an awful lot of Norwegians, Belgians... um, (laughs) basically anyone who was weak on English uh, <laughs> who I, I I took to late night um, late night openings of the British Museum <laughs> that was a strip bar called sunset boulevard um, and you would get paid by these people you know, and so you learn to duck and you learn to dive i uh, very bad at low profile, it's just not my thing, but I did use the chutzpah that I learnt from my education, is I'd walk into Sainsbury's I'd get a bag in each hand ram full of meat I mean I have 100 quid in each hand and I'd just brazenly go up to the se- security guard and go, hello my good man now my wife's picking me up in the car park now which is the quickest way to get there and I would let him open the door for me as I walked out to the shops <laughs> So this is how it's going now it wasn't all going my way and yes I was selfish and ruthlessly self-interested but there were hiccups along the way and the worst hiccup was the shops that I chose were all supermarkets you know like Waitrose or Sainsbury's, Tesco's every little helps um, and we get this meat, we get out um, but uh, Waitrose they are, oh god they're unreasonable, I don't know if you've ever been in there <laughs> But they, you know, they've got a mean streak. Okay? I mean, I'm a kind person, I think. <laughs> these guys had a mean streak. I was arrested and imprisoned for the most well-traveled leg of lamb in Britain. They put a tracking device in a 15-pound leg of lamb. <laughs> Please, come on! <laughs> and you sit there and think, well, these are toe rag, he's, he's nicky stuff, he deserves to get it. And yes, I did. But have a heart. <laughs> have a heart. I went to Wandsworth prison which is like your Rikers Island Um, you know to be fair I'd been there about three weeks earlier and so a lot of the same people were there (laughs) and and so you have a kind of prison conversations go a bit like this hello son what you in for now in an ideal situation you want to have a Renoir or you know Rembrandt you want something a little bit glamorous I mean imagine arriving you kid on the block what are you in for son A leg of lamb does not cut it. (laughs) Just saying, it doesn't cut it. And when I left prison that time, you can imagine the feeling inside, that sense of desperation of that almost... Because if I'm honest, it was an upgrade to go to jail. It was an upgrade. I went back to the same place, to the same skip, counting my blessings that I still had a skip mate. He hadn't run out on me. And after a couple of days... I said, this is ridiculous. (sighs) I'm privately educated. I'm a man of intelligence, intellect and social standing. Clearly looking down on the world from the gutter. But I decided that... I said, Delroy, we need to cut out the middleman. We need to rob a bank. Simple. (laughs) right, now you need to understand something about crack cocaine. (laughs) Just just to get this clear. It was Thursday, which... um, in, in England was traditionally when the welfare payments would get handed out. So that was a sort of government trust fund, really. A bit like mummy and daddy. Um, <laughs> they, they didn't cut you off. And so we hadn't had to put ourselves an offer. We had money in, our, in, in, in the bank or money in our hands. And we were very high. We'd been smoking crack. And I said, oh, don't worry. we need to come out of man. What we really need to do is rob a bank. <laughs> All right, Red, you've got something sorted, haven't you? Leave it to me, Dale. I'm the brains of this operation. (sighs) Right, that was Thursday afternoon. By the time we got our act together, it was Sunday morning. Now, I'm not sure uh, about this part of London, but certainly where I come from, Sunday morning, the banks don't open. (laughs) Now, that was a minor detail. You could even say a hiccup. You know, my banana in a bag really wasn't going to be very useful against a locked door. (laughs) I thought it could look quite threatening on a counter. And then fate played a hand. A Portuguese cleaning crew was going in the back. Now Delroy, minus the spiderweb tattoos, if he just kept his face to one side, he could pass quite well. My Portuguese is sketchy, I've got to say. I can get you a couple of beers, maybe a coffee... But convincing a Portuguese cleaning crew that I was a legitimate inspection manager on their route wasn't going to wash. At that point, all hell broke loose. They rang an alarm. The original idea was to go and empty the drawers. I mean, how naive can you get? I thought, oh, there'll be money. Don't... They'll it you away. <laughs> scoop, 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 scoop. scoop, scoop, scoop. <laughs> I was high as a kite. I'm, I'm just saying, yeah. Anyway, that is where we got to... We ran out. Now, Dell, he had short legs and a canny mind. He'd been doing this for a long time. He was gone. I'm standing there going, Delroy! Delroy! <laughs> and then I notice people coming at me, so I've legged it. And then above the build, a Bob the Builder-Have-A-Go Hero, driving a, a, a particularly useful pickup truck called a Nissan U-Van, drove straight at me, pinned me against the wall, and parked his van on my feet. <laughs> uh again nicked the police thought it was Christmas all this missing meat mystery was suddenly cleared up overnight (laughs) I was caught uh, I was banged up and sent back to prison and uh, at that point my legs, they'd crushed my toes they'd broken and it's important not for sympathy but for what happens next they'd broken my toes my legs had swelled up I call it kebab leg disease I don't know if you're familiar with Donna kebabs (laughs) Doner kebabs are a, a staple diet of, of Britain and my legs looked exactly like a doner kebab I couldn't leave my cell because my feet were broken and they decided, after about three days, that I needed to see a doctor no shit shall I? <laughs> so I was lined up ready now to get me to the doctor from prison, I'm not saying I was the ideal person you know, to sit with in any encounter. But they stood me, like, I mean, I'm hobbling like this. <laughs> and they locked my wrists together like that with shackles, not handcuffed, Victorian shackles. I could smell Oscar Wilde's aftershave on them. I mean, <laughs> I'm telling you. They then fixed another one to a huge meathead on my right and another one on the left. I'm now pinioned physically between two guards. I mean, you know, this is quite shaming, actually. And then they have the pièce de Resistance. And they get a guy with a leather belt and a 20-foot steel chain which they put around your waist. He stands behind me. I'm pinioned between two guys. I'm held on a 20-foot steel chain. I look like Hannibal Lecter on a day out. <laughs> and to get me from the prison to the hospital, I have to get a specially adapted minicab which is for uh, people that have to use wheelchairs. So it's the only thing that could get us all in, you know, their insurance is covered. And I was taken to a hospital called Chelsea Westminster Hospital. Now, you might think, under ordinary circumstances, especially when the sort of calibre of social position that I was falling from, they might use a discreet back entrance. They didn't do that. Chelsea Westminster Hospital has two revolving doors, they're like slow, relentless windmills. So, I want you to picture yourself shackled and pinned between two huge meatheads. Now, we could go and get in. And the problem was the guy on the chain. He had to run and try and get in as the gap closed. Well, it jammed. The whole thing's gone off. I'm in prison, Mufti. I've got these guys, prison guards. I've got a guy on the chain whimpering. The janitor has to come. I, clearly, you know, I've operated in this area. I'm you know, terrified I'm going to run into some friends of my parents. You know, it's, it could have been embarrassing. And eventually we get into the hospital. We get in, and I go up. and I have to have the ultrasound, and I, you know I'm playing all sorts of silly jokes. You know I'm still trying to keep up there. You know I've got them to release the shackles so I can go and wee. Otherwise there was going to have to be quite a complicated thing. But I, I had to still wear the chain, so I managed to time the flush. I said, pull the chain and time the flush. So everyone's like, okay. See, I was fine. I was entertaining the troops. I thought they were finding me highly amusing. They were tearing their hair out. And we walked back down a corridor, which is almost as long as this this room. Probably twice as long. And it just so happened that a cousin of my second ex-wife pending, as it now turned out, um, was doing a Friends of the Hospital bookstore. I mean, how unlucky can you get? And as she saw me through the distance, she went, (laughs) you-hoo!
4: (laughs) <laughs>
2: and as we walked past ka-chum, 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 like this, she sort of fainted, she collapsed and I, I had this moment when she collapsed and nurses were running around trying to sort of bring her around and I was held against the wall between these two guards and I know it sounds mad but for the first time I could see myself as others must see me now that is a very difficult thing to do I don't know if anyone here has had occasion to look at themselves, not just in a mirror, but to really look at themselves and their attitudes and their behaviours. And I did, I had no choice, and I just thought, what has happened to me? You know, I was crippled, I'm in chains, I'm going back to a prison. This isn't plan A. (laughs) B, C, D, E or G. Then again, circumstance took hold, because I'm now languishing in prison i am been done for attempted bank robbery, I'm looking at a possible four to five years. Nobody wants to spend four or five years in prison. I don't want to spend four or five minutes in prison. And anyone, has anyone in the room been to prison? So no one... <laughs> interesting that we're at a risk show and no one's prepared to take the risk of coming clean. Um, or perhaps I'm a freak. No, uh, I think we'll work with that. Going to prison is scary they're going to screw you in the showers they're going to hurt you you're going to get bullied you're going to get mullered you're never going to see daylight what they don't tell you is that it stinks it is fetid you have a thousand people packed into a, a space for 600 all of them with different dietary needs and toilet training that I was given as a child so you live in this hideous thing and every three weeks I was taken from the jail to the court for sentencing. Didn't happen, didn't happen. More reports, more this, more the other. And I became very depressed. I mean, uh, we had one of the earliest storytellers talking about that separation from life, from society. That was me. I couldn't get the quantity of drugs. Fun if I found it quite easy to get drugs in prison. Not so easy to pay for them, of course. Um, there aren't quite so many corner stores. And you take a beating every now and then, but My thing was, I'm just going to be held forever. I just thought my life's over. Now, in my sane life, I was a dad of three beautiful children. And in my real life, I was public enemy number one, banged up in a prison in South London with no idea of how long I was going to be there or when I was getting out. This was my own private Guantanamo. okay? So it was scary. didn't know what was going to happen. And this is where the real surprise came in, because for those of us that have had to, through circumstance, be creative with some of the truth, and um, have show a little sleight of hand when it comes to the till and the register of the shop, when you've shat in public, when you've had a complete stranger shoot a needle into your neck and you're not even sure what's in it, while people from the office opposite you say, "Oh God, go away! We're calling the police." <laughs> And you just look at them and say, do what you want. I'm going to be gone in two minutes. And I know where you work. I'd become an animal. So locked up in jail, I had time to realise that I didn't really like being an animal. But I had no idea what to do. And every three weeks I was taken in front of the same judge. He's an amazing man called Justin Phillips. And this is where the biggest surprise to me of this story comes, was that he looked at me and he said why is this man brought before me every three weeks why can we not get a resolution no borough wanted to take responsibility for me no one I knew wanted to take responsibility for me I had nowhere to go and he said to me "He said, what do I do and I said to him with utter sincerity I said if you lock me up you're just going to have a bigger problem to deal with when I get out so what do I do and then something weird happened. I looked at him against every instinct of every courtroom I've ever been in. I looked at him and I went, Help me. Just help me. And he did. He made a special order. I had to go and see him every fortnight. I built a relationship with him. He reintroduced me, he rehumanized me. And I got involved with a load of people that could help me. Many years later, about three or four years later, I got approached with the organisation I was working with to say, oh, there's a guy down in West London wants to set up a dedicated drugs court. Will you go down and tell them about how we approach sobriety and keeping off drugs? I said, yeah, yeah, fine. And I had to go in and there was a government quango, there was about 30 people around a huge boardroom table. Ministers, finance guys, the whole lot—you know, legal profession. And in the middle of the room was Judge Phillips. And as I walked into that room he stood up and he went, oh my god Radcliffe! And started to cry. He came and gave me a huge hug and he just turned to everyone and said this is the guy I was telling you about. This is my guinea pig. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. But on the back of The evidence of his direction, of his input into my life and my criminal belch, if you like, all over Soho and the West End. He set up something called the Dedicated Drugs Court. So if I upset a few people along the way, which I did, if I upset myself along the way, which I did, I will be forever grateful to that man, because not only did he see it could work for me, it could work for a load of other people. And if we're not giving something back, then we're taking And I don't want to be a taker anymore. Thanks for listening.
0: That's all for this week, folks. This is Operators behind me now, and Risk has a bunch more live shows coming up. On the twenty second of July, we're in Chicago, Illinois. On the twenty fourth, we're back in New York and Los Angeles. In New York, we have a Parna In Los Angeles, we have Eric Andre that night, and uh, Melinda Hill. On August 29th, we're in Austin, Texas. On September 17th, we're in Portland, Oregon. And on September 18th, we're in San Francisco. We are taking pitches for the Austin Show, the Portland Show, and the San Francisco Show. So if you want to pitch us, go to risk-show.com submissions. Don't forget that we also teach storytelling one-on-one over Skype. We have an online course that you can take in your own time at your own pace. We have corporate workshops that we do for specific staffs of specific businesses. And we have regular one-day, two-day, and six-week workshops in New York and Los Angeles. Go to thestorystudio.org. To learn about our Storytelling Level 1, our Storytelling Level 2, our Storytelling for Personal Growth, there's so much to find there at thestorystudio.org. Risk is a proud and happy member of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts, and all Max Fun shows are listener supported. We very much rely on the financial help that we get from the people who love what we do. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and make a one time contribution or become a member and be sure to earmark your contribution for Risk. Otherwise, keep up with us and communicate with us. On Facebook and Twitter, we're Show. On Twitter, I'm at Allison. And, of course, anything else you need to find is at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. London hasn't seen a performance like this since Sybil Thorndyke appeared in St. Joan.